Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the hidden Nazi and the untold story of America's deal with the devil. Initially, the killing camp was going to be at a distance from where the railroad tracks emptied. But Hans Kemmler flipped those two camps so that the folks who were going to be gassed, the women, the children, the infirm, the people who couldn't walk as far, were taken to the closest camp where he built the gas chambers and the ovens so they wouldn't have to be carried. I want to tell you about something I discovered recently called carbon-60. I call it the miracle molecule. Now, you might remember an interview I did recently with a researcher, Chris Burris, who's looking to help people who experience pain, inflammation, loss of sleep, or lost mental acuity with his new C60 company, C60Evo.com. He has a product which is a consumable form of carbon-60 called ESS-60 that's been proven in peer-reviewed, published research to extend the lifespan of test rats by 90% while allowing them to live tumor-free. That's pretty amazing. Those rats were given the C60evo.com formula. The formula is a powerful antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C, and it's known to be a powerful anti-inflammatory. C60 is based on Nobel Prize winning chemistry. I highly recommend ESS60. The mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon every morning and we're both pain-free and sleeping better than ever. Discover the benefits of carbon-60. I call it the miracle molecule, ESS60, from c60evo.com. Now, make sure to use the coupon code rs one SPEC. That's RS1SPEC. Buy today at C60Evo.com. That's C60Evo.com. And don't forget the code RS1SPEC. This product has not been assessed by the FDA and is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. 
Welcome to your Friday, and thanks for all the well wishes and prayers for my mother. In case you missed it, she fell last week and broke a rib. She's now home from hospital, but uh, my four siblings and I are taking turns staying with her until she gets back on her feet again. She's 94 and very independent. Many of you, I'm sure, are dealing with elderly parents and having to juggle seemingly impossible work and family schedules to care for them. Obviously, I wish she hadn't fallen, and, and I hate to see her in any kind of pain, but it's at least an opportunity for me to go and spend time with her, stay overnight a few days, help her with her medication, get her meals, an opportunity to take care of her for once and, and give back a very, very minuscule portion uh, for all the things that she's done for me over the years. So in that sense, uh, I'm grateful. Just a heads up, I'll be hosting Coast to Coast AM next Friday, February 7th, and Saturday, February 8th. And I hope you can stay up late and listen. Go to coasttocoastam.com, and in the menu bar, go to Media, and then click on Local Stations to find an affiliate closest to you that carries the program. You may have heard me mention that I'm heading to the Netherlands at the end of April for two weeks along with my older brother and eldest sister and my brother-in-law to take part in the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Holland. My father was a young 22-year-old corporal uh, with Fort Garry Horse, an armored regiment. He was a, a tank gunner. He passed away in 1986, and so we're going over to honor him along with all of the other Canadian soldiers that took part in liberating that country from Nazi Germany. Well, this month, just a few days ago, in fact, marked another important anniversary, the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz by Allied soldiers. The Nazi concentration camp uh, was actually a complex of over 40 concentration and extermination camps operated by Nazi Germany in occupied Poland during World War II. It was part of the mass extermination of Jews. And about 1.1 million children, women, men died there. There were also unspeakable medical experiments carried out there on children. There were also other prisoners and victims included Poles, Gypsies, Russians, Belarusians, French, Ukrainian prisoners. A new book, the Hidden Nazi tells the story of an SS Nazi general, Hans Kammler, the worst Nazi you've never heard of. As documented in the book, the Holocaust could not have happened without Kammler. Dean Reuter is the author of The Hidden Nazi, the untold story of America's deal with the devil. He's general counsel of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy and a fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. And he's here with this incredible, disturbing story. Dean Reuter, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Great, good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Of course, this is uh, very timely. We just commemorated Holocaust Remembrance Day a couple of days ago. Let me ask you about this incredibly long journey. When did it begin and when did you first hear about General Hans Kammler? Well, that's a great place to start. It began for me in 2007. Uh, there's a fellow I knew in college in the 1980s, uh, and he approached me in 2007. Uh, I'm a lawyer by training, uh, and he asked me to write a collaboration agreement between him and another researcher. My friend Keith Chester is a researcher. He had met online in a uh, World War II forum, uh, Dr. Colm Lowry, and they had both been researching the same general. And he asked me to write a, an agreement between the two of them so they could share information uh, profitably um, without betraying each other, I suppose. Uh, there's not a lot of trust in some of these communities. Uh, so I did that draft agreement. And, uh, you know, I was intrigued. I knew this was a World War II issue. Um, you know, my whole heritage is German, uh, although my family came here you know, 150 years ago. So my family was on the side of the U.S. in the war. Um, indeed, my father was a U.S. Army officer, and I happened to have been born in Heidelberg, but because my father was stationed there. So I did this agreement. They started sending me bits and pieces of this story. It's, they described a story of this all-powerful, all-evil Nazi general who nobody had ever heard of and nobody had been uh, writing about. So, um, you know, I was wildly skeptical, actually, because I thought, you know, all the big stories of the war have been told by now, 70 years on, um, 75 now. Um, so I was skeptical, but they kept uh, trying to persuade me. I think at, at the outset, they had an author in mind, but 
uh, that didn't pan out. And I had done a couple law and policy books and they tried to persuade me to become the principal author. And uh, I started doing research on my own and then we banded together and, you know, uh, they convinced me, and the, the story is unbelievably compelling, I think. Uh, so let's uh, talk about General Hans Kammler, uh, a sidekick of of uh, Himmler, the head of the SS. What else can you tell tell us about Kammler? Well, he, uh, Kammler himself was an Obergruppenführer, which is the, uh, set, uh, set aside Himmler, the highest commissioned rank in the SS. Uh, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the SS. And, uh, you know, there were only uh, about uh, 40 or so uh, people that achieved that rank. And in the final year of the war, just one person was elevated to the rank of Obergruppenführer, and that was Hans Kammler. He was, uh, by training, an architect and an engineer, uh, and you know you could, I think, uh, theoretically, uh, go through the entire war as a line soldier or something like that, and do nothing uh, other than soldiering, nothing offensive, commit no war crimes. Uh, but uh, that's not the path he chose. He was an early adherent and an ideologue in uh, before Hitler became chancellor. Hans Kammler joined the Nazi Party. Uh, he joined the SS, the dreaded Schutzstaffel, even before Hitler became president. Uh, so he was an early adherent. And because of that, uh, I found in our, in our research, in researching the, the Hidden Nazi, the book, um, you know, there's this real line of demarcation between the early adherents and the later members, the later joiners of the Nazi party and the SS. There was some um, level of purity that was seen by the uh, leadership in those who had joined early as opposed to those who were considered uh, more opportunistic. So Kamler, an early leader, uh, an early adherent, uh, became a leader um, and sort of had this golden credential that uh, very few people enjoyed. And you, you, you call him the, or your research led you to conclude he was in effect, in effect the architect of the Holocaust. Indeed. I, so the first parts of the war, as an, as an architect and an engineer, he did some pretty benign uh, building projects, uh, test tracks for police, communication networks, uh, various buildings. Uh, but he developed this reputation for being very, very efficient, uh, using standardized materials and standardized building processes and uh, standardizing equipment um, that you know is commonplace today and became commonplace in the era of Henry Ford in this country, but that's what he excelled at. And um, again, he could have proceeded on a benign career path, but instead, uh, when uh, it came time to implement the Holocaust, uh, it was Hans Kammler uh, who signed the order in September 27, 1941. Uh, he picked Auschwitz as the, the camp to be the largest killing camp. Uh, and he signed the order expanding the camp, doubling it and redoubling it, uh, really laying out the meets and bounds of the camp, uh, uh, building the inf infrastructure, the, the perimeter, the water uh, supplies, the drainage, uh, and then started in on the buildings, designing what became the standard uh, concentration camp barracks, wooden barracks rather than a brick barracks that had been proposed by an underling. Uh, and, you know, th there's this architectural drawing that we have signed by Hans Kammler. It's the facade of a building that you'd ordinarily see in architectural drawings. And in the margin is written the capacity of that building, 550 prisoners to be housed in there. And there's a pen strike through 550 and written over 774. And that's the approach of the Third Reich and Hans Kammler to increase what was already an overcrowded situation and just cram 30% more people in there with the stroke of a pen. Um, and these are documents that are all in Hans Kammler's names, in his writing, with his signature. Um, but I, I want to be clear, he wasn't doing this from Berlin. He was not sort of a, a distant bureaucrat. He was a hands-on manager. He was making weekly and sometimes daily visits to Auschwitz. He'd gone around studying the most effective methods of killing people in great numbers. Um, the Nazis by this point in time, and now I'm talking about late 1941, uh, they had been killing 
uh, along the front lines. Einsatzgruppen were these special killing squads that were hanging people and shooting them and burying them in mass graves. Uh, they invented a box truck that would use its own exhaust fumes uh, to kill people in the, in the truck. Um, but Hans Kammler toured and, and tried to figure out the most effective way to kill people. And that's how he distinguished himself at Auschwitz and then reproduced that work at other killing camps throughout the Reich. And what about the construction of the, the, the infamous uh, gas uh, chambers, the showers, the, the crematoriums? Was he involved in that as well? That was his work. Uh, he, he started, he, he stood up the architectural office at Auschwitz and then he oversaw the installation of the gas chambers and then the crematoria and not just the installation and design of those, but the, the configuration. So there were two camps, at least at, at Auschwitz, one Birkenau, which became the killing camp, the other known as Auschwitz one, which was a slave labor camp. And there were other sub camps, uh, initially, um, the killing camp was going to be at a distance from where the railroad tracks emptied. But Hans Kemmler flipped those two camps so that the folks who were going to be gassed, the women, the children, the infirm, the people who couldn't walk as far, uh, were taken to, the, to the, the closest camp where he built the gas chambers and the ovens um, so they wouldn't have to be carried over great distances. And the slaves, the people who were the healthiest, had to walk a mile and a half to their camp, uh, but they were able to do that. Um, and but so the configuration that's one point of configuration where he just made it as efficient as possible which is horrid when you think about yes. it um, yes but then uh, the gas chambers he built in basement of a building um, uh, with an elevator up to the crematoria which were above and he did that so that the weight of these dead bodies would have to be transported over the shortest distance possible before they were incinerated uh, and that was his design and uh, he was on site firing his machine pistol in the air his, his, at his, at his uh, underlings, you know, uh, his underlings were afraid he'd be, they'd be killed if they didn't perform um, because he wanted these things built more quickly, more quickly, more quickly. And I write in the book, The Hidden Nazi, it's as if him and Himmler were in this bidding war to see who could kill the most people most quickly. Are there any uh, records or documents that verify uh, his involvement, let's say, at uh, Wansi, uh, where the, the final solution was, uh, was concocted, really? No. Uh, so his work, uh, you know, we don't, we can't put him at Vonsi. Vonsi was uh, in January 1942. What's interesting about the timing of all this is Kamler was building out the killing camps before Vonsi. So I've come to see that conference, which was, you know, Vonsi's in a close-in suburb of, of Berlin, as uh, a... Uh, an opportunity for the SS, who had already reached a decision about the, the final uh, solution, to impose their thinking and to impose that decision on all of the other Nazi and German leaders who would have to implement it. Um, so, um, Kammler wasn't there, but uh, you know he, he was there in spirit, in the sense that he was already on board with the Holocaust. He didn't need to be there, honestly. Uh, he was off doing his work and already building the infrastructure, uh, not just at, as I said, not just at Auschwitz, but at Lublin, Madjanek, uh, uh, Treblinka, Sobador, uh, at, you know, up to a thousand camps throughout the Third Reich and subcamps. So, uh, because time is tight, I mean, and and um, people will. You know, be able to find more detail, obviously, in the book, The Hidden Nazi. Uh, but I want to jump ahead to his supposed suicide. Uh, when did that supposedly take place and how did we know about it? So uh, we knew about it because, well, first of all, it took place near Prague. Uh, so as the, war, as the Third Reich is collapsing, the, 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 the points of action became Bavaria, really, and Czechoslovakia. He was in Prague. Uh, the conventional history is, and this is early May of 1945, literally the end of the war. Uh, conventional history is he was trapped in Prague, that he uh, had a roadside, had a meeting with somebody else, then walked off into the woods and shot and killed himself. Uh, we knew this because it was reported by his driver, and this is supposedly May 8th or 9th. Um, the, the problem is uh, the driver didn't return his identity disc or his sidearms or his papers 
Um, he gave an exact location of this death and said he buried him in a shallow grave. Uh, no body was ever found. A even a post-war search uh, never turned up a grave. And as an Obergruppenführer, Hans Kammler was the equivalent of George Patton in terms of rank. So this is the equivalent of losing George Patton in the field of battle. It's just unthinkable. Um, and then uh, he was adjudicated dead in 1948 uh, by a German court at the request of his uh, wife, uh, who had children and wanted a, a veteran's benefit that she could get. Um, but then you know, some additional inconsistent versions of his death began to emerge over the years. Uh, and that really is what uh, turned my, uh, my colleagues, uh, Keith Chester and Colm Lowry, uh, onto the, the trail of Hans Kammler, the fact that there were these inconsistent, uh, completely incompatible versions of his death, five or six or seven of them, uh, that he was you know, shot by, in a hail of gunfire from, from enemies, that he was shot in the back of his head by his own adjutant before he could be captured, different locations. Um, and of course, you can't have one, more than one death as a human being. They can't, they can't all be true. So therefore, something hinky was going on. And we found that his, his death was... Uh, uh, his suicide was not uh, not real. It was faked. It was staged. Did his name come up uh, during the Nuremberg trials? Did did Himmler mention? Uh, did anyone mention uh, Kamler? His name did come up in testimony. It came up in depositions. Uh, in fact, uh, the Nuremberg transcripts and the documents at Nuremberg were extremely helpful to us uh, in in writing the hidden Nazi. Extremely helpful to us in proving that Hans Kammler was up to his eyeballs in the Holocaust. It's through Nuremberg that we got some of the documents showing his involvement uh, and, the, and the involvement of his office in building the concentration camps, building the gas chambers, building the ovens. Uh, so he's mentioned throughout. And, you know, I'm convinced if, if he was known to have been alive, he would have been number one on the most wanted list of, of undiscovered Nazis. Uh, he was that well-known, um, but, you know, since forgotten by history. And you know, we've been in touch with uh, the uh, Department of Justice Office of Special Investigations, which is our Nazi hunting group. Uh, we were in touch with the Mossad. We were in touch with the Wiesenthal Center. Nobody, nobody went looking for him. No, none of the historians went looking for him either because everybody believed his suicide. And, and at what point was it discovered that he was in U.S., I guess, U.S. Army custody or Allied custody uh, after his, the, the death of his, or the, the date of his supposed death. Well, that, that is the story of the hidden Nazi. It's us that discovered that. And we've discovered it over the past few years in, in a series of documents uh, that have come from various archives in Europe and the United States, uh, various Freedom of Information Act requests, um, and various other sources. And it's, it's a matter of piecing these things together. Um, but it's, I have no doubt in my mind. I mean, we have documents one after another that show that he did not die as reported in May of 1945. We had him, we, the United States Army Counterintelligence Corps, had him in custody well into 1946. So obviously he couldn't have died in May of 1945. More of my conversation with Dean Reuter when Conspiracy Unlimited return. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, 
And what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Say, have you visited our Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary? No? Well, here's Colleen Forgas, our Full Script Dispensary Manager and Nutritional Therapist, to tell you all about it. Hey, Colleen, welcome. Hi, Richard. How are you doing? I'm terrific. Let's talk multivitamins today. Great. You know, even if we're eating the best diet that we possibly can, I do really think it's a good idea to take a multivitamin daily. And I have two products, actually one designed for women and one designed for men. So it's women's multivitamin and men's multivitamin by a company called Innate Response. And I love it because it's derived from food. Uh, So it's a really high quality multivitamin. Terrific. We'll talk again next week. Take care, Richard. All right. That's Colleen Forgas, our full script dispensary manager, nutritional therapist. If you want to order any of these products you hear about, it's real simple. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the full script dispensary button and then register. Remember, all orders receive 10% off and orders of $50 or more, well, that order ships for free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again and what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Dean Reuter is here. He's the author of The Hidden Nazi, the untold story of America's deal with the devil. If we could, I'd like to talk to you about Hans Kammler's involvement in the creation of slave labor camps, because Werner von Braun also was involved in this. He was also exfiltrated into the United States. Can you tell, tell me a little bit about his association with von Braun? Sure. Um, so as to slave labor, he was, uh, Hans Kammler was a, a huge advocate of slave labor. Uh, he, um, uh, was one of the creators of what became the known as the Eastern plan, uh, the general plan Ost of, of the uh, Nazi regime, uh, this ambitious idea of taking over the Baltic States, much of Ukraine, Crimea, um, and building model German cities. Auschwitz was to be one of the first model German cities, uh, taking over enemy territory, populating those territories with ethnic Germans, and building out new cities, and using slaves to do that. Uh, The original vision uh, of Kamler's was to use as many as 20 or 30 million slaves, killing them in the process, working them to death. Um, And we've got some unbelievable quotes. you know, no matter the number of human victims is one of his quotes. The work must be executed and finished in the shortest possible time. That was his view of slaves. Um, uh, because there was this, a little bit of tension between those who wanted to win the war um, and use all the German resources toward the war effort uh, and those who wanted to kill all the Jews. That, those, those goals are a little bit inconsistent one with the other. Um, Kamler tried to sort of straddle that line by uh, taking the healthiest Jews and using them as slaves to contribute to the war effort. Um, the general plan East had to be sort of abandoned when the war started to turn bad, um, but he still used slaves, rented them out to German industry, rented them to the German government, rented them to German companies, uh, many of which would be known to your listeners today, um, and of course, used them in the SS um, and created a nice little revenue stream for him and, and, and Himmler. Uh, so that was his um, role in slave labor. Uh, from there, he went on to rule all of Germany's secret weapons, including the German rockets, the V-1 and the V-2 that you mentioned. Uh, the V-2 basically invented by Werner von Braun. Uh, von Braun worked for uh, Kammler by the end of the war. And our book, uh, I think fairly well, shows 
proves that uh, you know, everybody knows the story of the, the rocket team, including Von Braun coming to the United States. What they don't know is that it was Hans Kammler who moved the rocket team twice. Uh, they used to operate on the north shore of Germany uh, when the Soviets were coming. Hans Kammler moved them down to central Germany. It turns out that was going to be in the Russian zone of occupation, so he moved them again in April of 1945, one month before the end of the war. He moves them down to Bavaria, literally right in the uh, path of the advancing American army. Uh, and that's how they surrender. That's how the rocket team gets to the United States, uh, because they were hand-delivered by Hans Kammler. And uh, our contention is he did that in order to rehabilitate himself and save his own life. Uh, the problem with that is if the guy walks off into the woods and shoots and kills himself, uh, it doesn't look like he's saved his own life. But when we can prove that his suicide was faked, the the, the, the Kamler deal, as we call it, really makes a lot of sense. So was Kamler exfiltrated through Operation Paperclip at the same time as people like Von Braun? That, that's a great question. And I, we don't we do not think so. Uh, you know, we're very careful in our book where we say exactly what we know. Uh, and uh, when we sort of run out of positive proof, uh, we're left to speculate. Um, you know, we know that we had him in custody well into 1946. Uh, there's an extradition request from Great Britain saying, will you give us Kamler? There's a note in the file saying we have no, no objection to giving Kamler to the Brits. Um, you know, as, as part of his ruling the rockets, he actually was deploying the rockets in the field of battle. So it was him, literally him in the field, bombing uh, London and Southampton um, d during the final months of the war. Uh, so the Brits wanted him. There's a note in the file saying we don't object to his extradition. And then the paper trail just runs cold. Uh, so we're left to piece together other similar cases where the U.S. recruited Nazis and used them as intelligence assets and, you know, um, helped them leave the country, we think, to South America. South America. Hmm. Yeah. But there, you, you can't rule out that he was exfiltrated into the United States along with people like Walter Dornberger and other, others who escaped the hangman's noose at Nuremberg. No, that's exactly right. We lay out, at the end of the book, when we run out of proof, we lay out three scenarios, that what we think are the most likely scenarios. One is he stayed on the continent. He stayed in Europe. The other is, with help from the Americans, he came to the United States. And as support for that as a possibility, um, you know, we have all of Operation Paperclip, but then we talk about a few other cases where people came to the United States, Nazis, known war criminals, came to the United States with the help of Americans uh, and escaped justice. Um, and then the third scenario we, we lay out is, is that he came to South America, again, with the help of the United States as part of the Kamler deal, as part of the payoff from the Americans to Hans Kamler. It's, it's amazing to me that um, I'm thinking of um, Eichmann, uh, who was hunted down mm -hmm. uh, and, and I believe apprehended in, in South America. He was. Why the, uh, the Israeli Nazi hunters wouldn't have known about him? Or his whereabouts. Well, it, it, uh, when we talk to them, we talk to the we talk to Mossad. That's the Israeli Nazi hunters. We talk to uh, the Wiesenthal Center, and we talk to uh, the American Nazi hunters. And the, the 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 answer we got from them was: we had limited resources. We had to go after people who were alive. Hans Kammler's dead. They didn't know he was alive. They didn't know he was alive until they read the Hidden Nazi. So the trail runs cold. Uh, when? Basically 1946? Yeah. March of 1946. We've got the extradition request, the response, and then it's as if he was never alive. Um, but, you know, I, we then shift to a discussion of the rat line, the, the way that a lot of Nazis got off the continent, some with the help of the United States. Um, we talk about that, and we talk about uh, the fact that those people that were dropped into the rat line by the U.S. Army CIC. Um, some of those people, their documents were signed by uh, a, a lieutenant colonel, a U.S. Army lieutenant colonel, counterintelligence corps, same guy that signed off on the Kamler records. And the practice was, and we recount this event, um, uh, when somebody was put into the rock, uh, rat line, their name was changed, their files were destroyed. 
and believe me, there are very, very few files of Hans Kammler. Given the, the, the heights to which he rose, uh, you'd expect a lot more files in, in U.S. files than, than we were able to find. So it, it is as if there was a deal and a cover-up. Now, Von Braun, one could make a, a, a case. He was a, he was a rocket scientist. Uh, what could Kammler have traded in exchange for his freedom, if that's in, in fact what happened? What he traded was the rocket team. That rocket team would have been captured by the Soviets um, uh, in, in, in late, late 1944 in uh, um, on on the Baltic coast of Germany. They would have been captured later. They would have been left to the Russians later uh, in central Germany. We only got them because Hans Kammler put them on his personal train and moved them, the rocket team, including von Braun, from central Germany to Bavaria, where the U.S. Army was. And that's how we got the rocket team. So that's what he traded. He didn't trade himself. He traded von Braun. He traded others. And those rocket teams, that rocket team, you know, put us on the moon and helped us develop the ICBM. Von Braun was so valuable that after the war, we found this out. I didn't know this. Uh, we found documents showing that uh, the Soviets, the war's over. Hostilities have ended. The Soviets sent a team in to try and kidnap, kidnap Von Braun, uh, who was in our custody at the time. That's how much they valued him. They wanted him. They, they had a military action after the war uh, with a reputed ally to try and kidnap Von Braun, one of our prisoners. There's a a famous line in the movie All the Right Stuff where some American astronauts are sitting around arguing, uh, you know, who's going to get to the moon first, us or the Russians? And the other one quips uh, something to the effect, well, we will because our Nazis are better than their Nazis. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a joke sometimes attributed to Bob Hope. Our our Nazi scientists are Uh, better than the Russian Nazi scientists. And it's true. It's true. Uh, And that's because of Hans Kammler. How do you view personally, and you mentioned, you know, descendant, a German uh, ancestry and an an American now, how do you view that chapter in history, especially the Cold War, where the rationale was, you know, the enemy of our enemy is our friend, we had to make the deal with the devil, we needed German intelligence, we needed German rocket scientists to to beat another evil, the Soviet Union. How do you perceive that chapter? It's, it, that, that is one of the difficult sort of conundrums I confront in The Hidden Nazi. Uh, you know, we made this deal, and I, it's easy for me to sit in judgment 75 years later saying we never should have done this. Uh, but, uh, you know, Russia was an existential threat. They felt their way of life was incompatible with our way of life. They would have liked to have destroyed the United States. Um, so it was sort of an all-hands-on-deck panic mode. And we recruited lots of Nazis um, as intelligence assets. We used lots of them on the continent for years after the war. Uh, And so did the Brits, so did the French. Um, I'm not saying that that excuses it. Uh, I came to a point where I was very reluctant to second guess the deal uh, because it was made in the moment. Uh, It was made under those circumstances, which, you know, I can't fully appreciate not having been there. And I do think without that rocket team, the geopolitical world today would look a lot different. I'm not sure we would have won the Cold War. Uh, Russia certainly would have had uh, ICBMs before we did. And, you know, you can see that's a way to project power uh, when when you're able to put a a nuclear weapon in the nose cone of an intercontinental, an ICBM. um, uh, You've got a great deterrent. uh, And that's what won the Cold War for us. How much resistance was there uh, or lack of cooperation or, or, or cooperation from various U.S. government agencies uh, while you were researching this? Were they willing to participate and help, or did you have the sense that they were, they were throwing obstacles in your way? So I think there was an active cover-up of the Kammler deal, uh, and I talk about this in The Hidden Nazi, you know, for, for years after the war. Uh, and there's a lot of inertia in that cover-up. Uh, and then it became about, uh, you know, documents that, that were, had been destroyed. And, you know, as years pass, nobody who has an investment in that cover-up is alive anymore. Um, having said that, th- there does remain this bias in the government about giving out information. Um, about anything, virtually. Uh, you know, if you submit a Freedom of Information Act request, it will generally be read in the narrowest terms possible, and 
the exceptions, the reasons for withholding documents will be read in the most generous terms possible. Uh, that's just the nature of government, unfortunately. Um, having said that, um, you know, we, there were a couple documents that weren't produced to us that, uh, that raised an eyebrow in my mind, but I don't think people were uh, trying to obfuscate. I don't think there was active resistance in the government. Um, there is one, the most recent period of that, I think, is in the late 90s, early 2000s. There was an international working group that was set up by statute. It was set up to declassify documents. Um, and the CIA has been criti criticized for uh, sort of doing exactly what I just said, really, uh, viewing their requirement to declassify documents as narrowly as possible and, and viewing the exceptions as broadly as possible. Um, the CIA took some heat from that. Um, but I think that's the nature of national security people, and that's the nature of government generally. I don't think it's ideal. I don't mean to excuse it. Um, uh, I, I do have some sympathy for people who have on their shoulders, the responsibility for American security uh, as they're trying to make decisions about what to disclose and not disclose. Having said that, if it's 75 years old, you got you to produce it, I think. Was there any period during your research in this investigation that you maybe feared the worst case scenario that is that perhaps Kamler was exfiltrated into the United States? I mentioned Walter Dornberger, who, who took up a prominent position in, with Bell Helicopter. There are... There's rumor and speculation that Fritz Kramer, another high-ranking Nazi, was uh, found a position inside the Pentagon. Some have even go, have gone so far to suggest it was at Fritz Kramer's behest that President Reagan visited the Bitburg Cemetery, uh, which was predominantly uh, SS, uh, Waffen-SS soldiers. Did you ever start to wonder about, well, maybe the rot goes even further than we can imagine? Uh, I, yeah, I, I have. And, you know, I, I think in The Hidden Nazi, in our book, we make a very good case that von Braun was dirtier than anybody's reported before. Um, and we provide evidence of that. There's a, there's a 1948, 1948, years after the war, von Braun's in the United States working as our um, – uh, as working on behalf of us on rockets, um, and there's an interrogation report where it's very, very clear that uh, he's hiding documents, still hiding documents from the United States. These are rocket technology documents. Uh, it becomes very clear that he was working on a rocket, uh, not not a not an exploration rocket, but a missile, a weapon uh, designed to reach the eastern seaboard of the United States from Europe. Um, it's very clear in our documents that, that uh, von Braun was working uh, on a rocket open to the idea of putting um, chemical weapons in the nose cone of a rocket, that he had contemplated this. Uh, so he was much worse than we thought. There are other cases. Uh, the guy named George Rickey, uh, or Rick Hay, uh, who was the manager of the underground plant at which these rockets were put together, using thousands of slaves. I mean, by definition, a war crime. Uh, when we discovered the V-2 rocket plant, the general in charge on site boxed up 42 boxes of documents, sent them to the United States, along with the plant manager, to interpret those documents, to, um, to translate them and interpret them um, in terms of technology. Um, that guy was a wanted war criminal, and he ended up in the United States interpreting the documents, translating the documents that we were searching for in order to prosecute him. I mean, there's some high irony there. Um, and, you know, we document other cases that have been, you know, documented before, but we go through them again, uh, where people came to this country, the United States, under their own names, under the protection of the United States, and, and were known war criminals. Um, so, uh, it, it is a dark era in our history. I think some of it, you know, you can see through the lens of um, an exigent threat, an imminent threat from the Soviet Union. Uh, some of it might have been less, um, less justified even than that. What has been the reaction to your book, let's say, from the, the Holocaust Museum in the United States or the State of Israel to your work in uncovering this, this heinous uh, character? 
So I haven't gotten much official reaction. Uh, the Holocaust Museum folks, I have to say, were, uh, were, were brilliantly helpful in, in our research. They have a great library there. Um, a lot of my research was done at the library. They have documents and books there that don't exist elsewhere. Um, and uh, so they've been very helpful. They haven't reacted to the book. Um, I talked to somebody from the Office of Special Investigations at the Department of Justice uh, who said the, thought the book was very well researched um, and proved, uh, you know, provided a lot of new history uh, for an era that many think is, is you know, been thoroughly explored. Uh, there's uh, just uh, today or yesterday, I think, a Times of Israel article. Uh, that reviews the book favorably, but it's not, I mean, it's not a, a response from the Israeli government or anything like that. Um, but, uh, you know, anecdotally, uh, I can say that the book is being we very well received by the general public. Uh, you know, I, Amazon is sort of a way to take the temperature of the general public. I think there are 50 reviews and all but one of them are five-star reviews. So, um, and, you know, I'm still doing talks about the book, and now I'm running into people who have read the book who, who really like it, who see it as, a, you know, an accessible book. A lot of Holocaust survivors or people that know survivors, I should say, have thanked me for writing the book because they, they think it's accessible to sort of younger people uh, who really don't know about the Holocaust. It provides a lot of detail and tells some stories that I think are very compelling and is a way to uh, get the Holocaust um, – you know, socialized among a new generation of people who just don't know about it. Uh, you mentioned that one of the, the possible scenarios was that Kamler was, uh, through the rat line perhaps, settled in, in, in South America. There's a, there was, a, 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 I thought, a brilliantly produced series on the History Channel, uh, Hunting for Hitler, uh, which, you know, suggested he may have uh, also faked his suicide and escaped, and they tried to, uh, you know, look for, for, for clues that he also had, had settled in South America. Uh, was there any investigation uh, down there or any clues as to uh, whether he, he, he might have lived out his life there? So we got some information on South America, but not about Hans Kammler in particular. Uh, there were two documents written by government agencies after the war, one called the Blue Book. One, call, one is a 1953 CIA report that rings like an alarm bell about uh, the number of not just Germans, but the number of Nazis, the number of scientists, uh, the, the fact that the German economy had been duplicated down in Argentina. Um, there were, uh, they described Bavarian-type villages in Argentina and tens of thousands of Germans. And uh, when I say it, it rings like an alarm bell, they were fearful, the CIA that is, uh, fearful of a resurgence of a Fourth Reich. Um, and they had reason to be because by 1943, so about the midway point through the war, Germany had already exported more gold than it uh, possessed before the war. So all that gold's going somewhere. Um, and you know, at least a year in advance of the end of the war, the Germans knew the war was, was lost. And if you look around, you can see people making their own exit strategies. The people that had means, and I mean the Nazi leaders, uh, the people that had power uh, started figuring out what they were going to do when the war was lost. And of course, they're doing this quietly because you, uh, to do it openly would be a, to, 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 to brand yourself a traitor. Um, but it's, it's inconceivable in my mind to imagine that there wasn't an organized effort to get the technology and the gold out of Germany so that they could rise again, so the fascists could rise again. And we talk about it in the Hidden Nazi. There's a meeting, a famous meeting uh, in Strasbourg uh, in the fall of 1944, uh, where the German uh, Nazi leaders tell the German industry, offshore everything, get your technology and your gold and get it out of the country because we're going to lose the war and we want to preserve that for later. And it's it's always uh, rather curious to me that the, the German army surrendered in, in 1945, but the Third Reich never did. Right. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, What's you have to let me yeah. let me say one more thing about that. And this, you, you need to know about the arc of history for this. But you know, the the German army surrendered in in, in 1918, also ending World War One. In what 
it was described later as commonly in Germany as a stab in the back. And the Germans had never fought a battle in that war on German soil. Everyone thought they were winning and thought they would win, thought they would prevail. And suddenly they lose catastrophically. Uh, it was a betrayal. And, you know, they suffered miserably under the Treaty of Versailles. And yet they came back. Um, they came back in World War II, and they came back strongly, and they occupied more territory than they ever did in World War I. Uh, they became bigger and stronger than ever before. So given that arc of history as a German, you knew that. Um, I, I think it's completely plausible to imagine they were planning for a Fourth Reich. Right. They didn't so much lose the war as they were forced to move their uh, their base of operation. Right. How do people get a hold of uh, a copy of The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil? It's in bookstores everywhere. It's also available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble online. All the, all the online outlets and all the bookstores have it. And, uh, and what's next for Dean Reuter? What's your next project? Well, you know, a lot of people who've read this book say it ought to be turned into a movie. And, and you know, four documentary filmmakers have approached us about uh, doing a documentary, but we're sort of fishing about for uh, some sort of Hollywood treatment, a, a Netflix series or an HBO series or a, a, a major motion picture, because it, it really does read like nonfiction. I mean, I mean, like fiction. It reads like it's a made-up story. And if I hadn't been involved in it myself, uh, I, I'm not sure I'd believe it was true uh, because it's such a spectacular tale. So we're working on that just now. Well, thank you for, uh, for uncovering this, uh, this sordid chapter in history. Great work. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been, a, it's been a joy to talk to you. You're really well informed on these issues, so it's nice to chat with you. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back with a few words about an upcoming episode. If you want to support my work here at Strange Planet, please consider becoming an official donor. It's easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. There are several donation tiers to choose from, from a dollar per month to $50 a month. New donors at the $10, $20, and $50 per month tier receive a free mug from my Strange Planet shop. Donors in the $20 tier also have their names appear on a crawl during the YouTube live stream of my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show. And donors in the $50 tier receive a special on-air thank you on my radio program. Whatever you give, your support helps keep my radio program and this podcast going. Help me pursue the truth wherever it leads. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Thank you and God bless. Coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited, meet a UFO researcher who's collected a wealth of first-hand accounts in which owls manifest in the highly charged moments that surround alien contact. I was having a lovely conversation as the sun was setting, and an owl flew over our head, and then another owl, and then another owl, and there were three owls, and they flew above us, and they landed on branches near us, and it continued until the sun went totally down, and we looking straight up at the stars, the, the stars would be blotted out for just a half a second as these owls would pass right above our faces close. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.